Sports Interaction, Canada Sportsbook. Welcome to Game Over Montreal. The Montreal Canadiens have won again. They're up to seven wins on the season. They're above 500. In fact, they are one win from equaling their win total under Dominic Ducharme last season after 45 games. And yes, I am going to keep on bringing that up. There are also quite a few Cole Caulfield goals ahead of that. All right, we've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to focus in on the Hall of Fame because we've got uh, Paul Paduti with us today. Sorry if I massacred your name, Paul. You can uh, figure it out and uh, shame me once you join the show here. And we've got Sebastian High, who's a scout with Dauber Hockey and has his own podcast called the Puck and Roll Podcast. It's going to be really fun to talk about this game because it was a wild one against Vancouver. The Canucks were not great, and then the Canadians kind of fell asleep with the lead and let them back in it, and then closed it out. Kirby Doc doing his thing. We're going to talk a lot about Kirby Doc tonight. We're going to talk about Cole Caulfield laying the body on six foot eight Tyler Myers several times in this game, including once causing a goal. And uh, Nick Suzuki staying hot, Gallagher fighting goalies. It was a very Montreal Canadiens game, let's be honest. And congrats to the Montreal Canadiens who have gotten through their first game in a stretch here without somebody getting suspended. We think. We don't know yet. We'll wait to hear from the Department of Player Safety. All right. Uh, before I get into the show, though, I've got to ask you if you want to bet. You can do it at Sports Interaction Canada Sportsbook. Football continues. Basketball's back and the hockey season's well underway. Made for Canadians by Canadian Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. You can bet pregame, live in play, or on one of our many prop bets. Like the prop bet going around right now for a sports interaction, whether Cole Caulfield will score 50 goals this season. A little bit cold right now, actually. I think he has one goal in five games, but we'll see if Cole can get it going again real quick. Join now and see all sports betting has to offer. Head to sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. That's sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn, Ontario only, 19 plus. Please play responsibly. All right, I'm going to welcome in my guests tonight, Sebastian High and Paul. Paul? Paduti. Paduti, okay. <laughs> so I didn't massacre it. Perfect. Oh, you nailed it. You nailed it. Perfect. So obviously uh, a high-scoring game tonight, especially early, but uh, Kirby Doc, we'll start with him because... As I mentioned at the end of the game there, I was told people swearing up and down all summer after that trade by Chicago Blackhawks fans that he was not a good player. And it uh, turns out he is leading the Canadians, I believe, in pretty much all metrics from a possession standpoint and now scoring goals, setting up goals. He's doing everything on that top line. Yeah, after the Habs acquired Kirby Doc, I was not expecting that I would have to basically go on like a Kirby Doc hype campaign on Twitter to try to flip the narrative because it was very negative for basically like what, like the two and a half, three months between his acquisition and when the season actually started. And uh, I put out like a, a, a Twitter thread with some video analyses and was basically just saying like, guys, calm down. Uh, the Habs basically just, just flipped Alex Robinov, who I liked, but was never the highest on in terms of upside for a guy that is a legitimate top six center in the making. And I stand by that. And uh, I think it's fitting that he scored two goals tonight uh, on the night when I'm actually on here because I get to gush all about Kirby Doc. Well, I see. I always thought he was very disengaged in Chicago. And 
he's considerably more engaged now. It's kind of, it's kind of shocked me a bit. Um, it's amazing what giving a lot of ice time to someone perhaps does too, right? Um, they're in a full teardown, I guess, in Montreal. I don't want to use the word teardown. I don't want to make any enemies out of the gate, but they, you know, <laughs> they are, they are. And um, he's front and center and he seems really engaged. And I actually, one of the complaints with Doc is I find he doesn't shoot sometimes. And sure enough, as I was thinking that, and I made a note on it, and then he just rips one right at the end of the game after I think he didn't he didn't shoot on a two-on-one. I was like, okay, that's more like it. <laughs> yeah, literally last game I was talking to Max Van Hoot and we were and I was saying like my one criticism of Doc is I wish that he would be a little bit more aggressive when he's the puck carrier and just go to the net and take the shot because he's always looking for Suzuki or Caulfield, which is it's it's a fine play. It's worked really well. But then tonight, when he actually buckled down and, and took a couple shots, a couple goals, he can do it. He's got four now on the season. It's a decent clip. So uh, good on Kirby Doc. He's seizing the opportunity, you know, playing a position that wasn't expected on the wing, but excelling with those two guys. They continue to be uh, much better by the possession metrics than <laughs> Suzuki and Caulfield were with Monaghan or Anderson. So that's also a huge improvement. Uh, Nick Suzuki stays hot. He's just been unbelievable lately. He's on pace for 100 points, which I don't think anybody expects him to do. But I, I think the most impressive thing about this start for Suzuki, the fact, like, we all know he's not going to score at a 40-plus goal pace. I feel like everyone knows that he's not that kind of goal scorer. But the fact that he started out like this after being named captain at the age of just 23 the kid has ice in his veins. Yeah, he really does. And the one thing I, I just always find impressive is as bad as the Habs power play has been during many stretches over the last few years, the one play that has always worked is that one where Suzuki floats around, cuts back, and just goes basically up the jugular right at the right hash marks and just shoots it. And he can hit basically any corner of the net from there and it doesn't matter how like how many people are between him and the goalie. He always gets that puck on net somehow, and it worked again tonight. It was a bit of a softer one, but uh, Tyler Myers was acting as a perfect screen, so uh, a nice assist from him on, on that goal for sure. But uh, yeah, Suzuki's just been tremendous this start, start of the year. Yeah, I, I have such a hard time projecting or pegging Suzuki as to what he's going to be. You know, sometimes I think... Maybe he'll just be a nice player like a Ryan Nugent Hopkins who, you know, gets gets his 60 points and has some decent assignments. And then sometimes I think, hey, here's a guy who's going to get 80 or 90 points. And uh, I don't know. What, what do you think, Andrew? I, I have our time with this guy knowing what his ceiling is. Yeah, I mean, the guy that I continually draw comparisons to and I watch Suzuki from the time that he was a rookie is he reminds me the most of Saku Koivu, where when you need him to be a near point per game guy, he will do that, but it's going to take a lot out of him to do that and play like top line minutes. Like there'll be other parts of his game that suffers. He needs better insulation to be the best player that he can be. I think than the Canadians currently have. And I, I feel like that's not a controversial opinion because we know they're in a rebuild, but I, I see him as a guy who in a good season, you're looking at 70 points just with the way the NHL is trending towards more offense and being like a your top shutdown guy, he's he's the first pick of the coach in every situation, right? Whether it's power play, penalty kill, even strength, 
overtime three on three shootout. Like he's always the first guy over the boards. So that's pretty damn impressive for a guy in his young twenties who wasn't like a top three pick, but uh, overall, I don't think superstar necessarily when I, when I see Nick Suzuki, but I see so many good talent, like so many good tools that continue to be pushed together. And that uh, combination of being made for big moments from junior, when he led an three uh, Oh comeback, you know, uh, to his first taste of the Stanley cup playoffs. He was fantastic all the way to the cup final run. He was fantastic. And now captain of the Montreal Canadiens, the most storied franchise in hockey at just 23 and not, you know, he just doesn't feel it. You know, it just everything rolls off his back. It's quite the impressive set of tools all combined into one. I don't know if he's a superstar, though. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think uh, he's a perfect, like, 1B on, like, a like high-end contending team. If you have, I don't know, like, if, if we're talking about the draft, because, again, I, I'm a scout, so this is just my, my lingo, but if the Habs were to somehow get an Adam Fantilli or a Connor Bedard, if that's your, your first-line guy and you have Suzuki getting sec- second-line deployment, but, like, maybe 19 minutes a night with just special teams and whatnot, I think that that'd be perfect for him. Uh, and again, like if, if he is the number one guy, there are other ways to to form a contending team around that, right? Like if you build up a really high end defense and get more depth along the wings, I think that you could build a contender around that because not every Stanley Cup winner has that superstar center at, like at, on their first line, right? Like Ryan O'Reilly would be a great example of that in St. Louis, but I think in an ideal situation, he would not be the first line center if the Habs want to build that like perennial contender. Yeah, I, I don't know if you heard, but there's a couple big time centers available in the draft coming up this year. I'm guessing that's <laughs> that's part yeah. of the plan. But uh, I I do want to say before we're going to talk about Gallagher and uh, the whole fight with Demko and how that's so perfectly Gallagher. But before I do, I want to tell everybody watching the show tonight. Obviously, uh, if you're enjoying the show, hit us with a like. Subscribe to the channel, ring that bell that helps all of our videos show up in your subscription feed. Uh, Make sure that you share this show because, listen, the audience and specifically the stream chat, I'm looking at Dennis H talking about Sakakoibu because he's a huge Sakakoibu fan. Trizak uh, marveling over the handsomeness of Paul calling it what he called her cheekbones McJawline and Kay, one of our loyal listeners, marveling over Sebastian's hair being so great today the viewers of this show are part of the show we interact right so give us a share on your social media whichever one you want and uh, get some more people in here because the more people the merrier help us grow we're slaves to the algorithm so we need your help all right saying that i will say i'm gonna ask one more favor of the people who are uh tuning in right now game over vancouver is also live right now and kaya has been hosting this show so for so many Vancouver Canucks losses, she feels like me last year. So if you have a moment, open that SDPN link in a new tab, click on Game Over Vancouver, and just tell her she's doing great. Because Kaya has been suffering watching this poor Vancouver Canucks team. So please tell her she's doing amazing. All right, let's get into Gallagher versus Demko because that was a hilarious play to me where I don't even... Gallagher's great at doing the accidentally on purpose thing, 
but I don't know if he actually meant to stick Demko. But the whole like, oh, I'll fight you, and I'll fight you too, and like at one point he was mixing it up with uh, uh, Ekman Larson, and then he like in one second like kind of jumps and flips and does, goes after uh, Demko again, and then Christian Dvorak comes in and like pats Ekman Larson's head, who I know is his former captain, but uh, hilarious sequence all sequence all around. Well, what a, what a perfect pest he is, and admittedly, I d- I don't catch as many. Habs games only because I'm an Ontario guy and uh, the Leafs are kind of front and center. But every time I see him, I think, wow, the Leafs could use a Gallagher. And I know they probably no have wanted uh, Bunting to be that. And, you know, he's maybe a, a poor man's Gallagher in a way, but he's just not. Like Gallagher, Gallagher, excuse me, just he's everywhere. He's relentless. When plays like that happen, he doesn't have the benefit of the doubt. And I think that works in his favor. And you know, I kind of, I hate to admit it, but I just kind of love watching him do what he does. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah. as a Habs fan, like, grew up in Montreal, Gallagher was always, like, everyone's favorite player, apart from Carey Price. Uh, you just have to love his style, right? Like, yes, it, his style is the reason that he is declining, and I think it's fair to say that he is declining, uh, but he's still, he, he, despite all the injuries he's faced, he's still playing the exact same way he always has. And you just have to respect it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that that sequence was just incredible. I, I was grinning uh, ear to ear when that was happening because it's like, it's so Gallagher. It's not not just go attack Ekman Larson. It's also like, oh, you know what? Demko too. Why not? Right. And just <laughs> I felt your glove on my head. I'm going after they're you. They're both big guys too. Like, like Demko and Ekman Larson are not the, the, the two smallest customers to, to take on. And Gallagher's just in there. Going along, uh, I found it very funny that the the Vancouver broadcast uh, was utterly shocked that uh, Gallagher did not get a double minor for that. And it's just like, but there were two guys fighting him. Like, every person got a penalty. How is that, like, shocking? But, uh, yeah, a very Gallagher sequence. I feel like that was also, like, a misunderstanding of how officiating works in the NHL, where, like, retaliation always gets a penalty. Like most yeah. times the guy who does the first thing kind of skates and then whoever continues to go. And then if you go back at the guy, maybe you'll get a, a coincidental minor, but when you retaliate and it's right in front of the ref, that's, that's when you get caught. And Gallagher has taken advantage of that at previous points in his career. And he's been a victim to that at previous points of his career. All right. I want to kind of go through quickly on, uh, this hall of fame stuff because i feel like it's going to be fun and we while we have time left in the show i feel like we want to get as much of it in as we possibly can so paul i'm gonna throw over to you for a second and kind of explain the methodology in like a rough way of what you've done here because you've made a model and player cards to show like hall of fame cases for players careers historically yeah, that, that's exactly it, actually. So um, the, the concept is that it's a comprehensive Hockey Hall of Fame methodology boiled down to a single number. And uh, the reception I've gotten on has been really positive because I think it's become pretty digestible to have one number that's associated with uh, a player. And I, I do always have the caveat that, you know, it's a starting point. I don't want to be that 
spreadsheet hugging guy who just says you're in the hall of fame or out of the hall of fame because of this one number, but it's become a really good starting point uh, for discussion and, and how it works is so every player in history, I have a number for them and they're compared to a standard based on their era and their position. And that sort of becomes your guide. Okay. How close is the player to a standard? And then you go from there. So that's sort of a quick summary of it. Yeah. It's, it's really fun to be like player cards are, kind of the new hotness in like NHL analytics circles in that you can distill a lot of stuff into like one easily digestible uh, card that you can just go around and like, okay, at this, what's this mean? And I love how you've got several ways of measuring a player's career on there in order to get the, get the most out of players who are more like accumulators, somebody like say like Ron Francis versus people who are just like utterly dominant but had short careers like a Peter Forsberg or an Eric Lindros and being able to balance that is, is such a difficult thing. And I, I love that you have something in there to give people an understanding of it. Yeah. And that, that thanks. Thanks for the compliment. Um, one of the things that really kind of made the system pop was when I added in the peak, um, you can picture this was a lot of trial and error, but when I added in the peak, it more or less doubles someone's best seven years, right? Because they're already in their career consideration. And, and what that did was it made the players who were dominant for a stretch stand out. And I think that's how the Hall of Fame operates. I think that's how they've elected people. Um, when you think of the Berets or Forsbergs or Lindrosses or Cam Neelys, if you are truly great for, you know, six to eight years, you're in. So um, I designed the system with that in mind that players like that would stand out. And um, I think it's working so far based on the feedback I've gotten. Yeah. It seems like everyone's really into it. Now. I, I feel like there's a lot of, <laughs> I have very kind eyes. Thanks Trizak. Uh There's a lot of good feedback, obviously from it. There's, there's some ones that you've uh, made for us tonight that we're going to go through. But uh, before we do, I promised a hot take on this. I don't think, the Sedins who are going into the Hall of Fame shortly should be first ballot Hall of Famers. And my argument is, I think there's just superior careers out there who haven't got in. Guys like Alex McGilney, for example. How, how does that ring true for, or ring true or false for your system, Paul? Uh, it's a really fair comment, Andrew. Um, so don't get me wrong up front. I think they both belong in the Hall of Fame. Um, I think their story is incredible. The fact that two twins can play at that level, I think it gets people going to the Hall of Fame. I think they've been a class act. Uh, their careers have been outstanding. In the actual system itself, believe it or not, it's probably the only place where the Sedins have been split. And <laughs> um, it's... Daniel qualifies. He just kind of crosses that qualification threshold. And Henrik is more of a borderline guy. And it's because his, you know, I use the term adjusted pace. It's how many goals would he get per year in the neutral era? And it's, it's only 17. So the number's pretty low for a hall of fame player. Of course he was the passing brother of the two, but um, this, the data says they're not really first ballot. So I, I can't disagree with you, but I think the package is greater than the individual in their case. So I really have no problem with them rolling in and being celebrated myself. Getting challenged to go say that on Game Over Vancouver. Listen, if I didn't have my own sh my own show to host, I would. I'm sure Kaya would not appreciate it. But 
Yeah, I, I just it's one of those things where you understand why they go in, but and it's not like it's not even an anti-Vancouver thing, obviously, because I'm talking about Alex McGillney, who is also a Vancouver Canuck for a long time. So it it's just I I just don't I don't feel they're there. And speaking of guys who aren't quite there, obviously, uh, for this podcast, it's a great player to start with because it was uh, a, a guy that you know I've talked about a lot, I've written about a lot in my career. And is a former Montreal Canadian. And I asked you about him on Twitter, Paul, and you came through for me and made a PK Subban card that I've got up on screen now. And Subban not quite meeting the threshold of borderline, which makes sense considering his career arc. I do have one question though. International, he got zero points. World Juniors not uh, not a part of it. It's it's not, and you know, truthfully, it would just be really difficult to weave that in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it should be considered, and that's sort of where you know I focused on their NHL career, just because that's where all the data is. But uh, I think he warrants some kind of bonus on there. Does that enough to make him a Hall of Famer? Uh, maybe not on the junior side, but I think his role in the game is probably what will get him into the discussion, just being an ambassador, being legitimately famous, being dynamic, being, you know, a social justice warrior, a philanthropist. I mean, pretty interesting and uh, awesome guy, really, when you think about it. Um, what, what, what do you think, Sebastian, as a neutral party here, when you think PK, where do you, where do you put him? Well, I, I I wouldn't be a neutral party. I'm 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 a Habs fan through and through. But uh, also also as a as a new owner of a 2016 PK Subban Winter Classic jersey, also have a little bit of a, a another bias there. But yeah, I I, I adored PK Subban. I was devastated when, when they traded him for for Weber. Uh, even though that 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 trade ended up going very well for the Habs. Uh. I, I don't think he'd be quite Hall of Fame level if you're looking purely at the NHL career. But again, right, it, it's how much do you weigh the things outside of the ice, right? Like like his $10 million donation to the Montreal Children's Hospital is something that we haven't seen any other NA, like NHL player do ever in at that type of scale, right? And and that community building aspect is huge. Uh, like, like his, his influence for in terms of uh, also inspiring young black kids to get into the game and and opening doors for them as well right like the same thing could be said with uh, a guy like Wayne Simmons right like like these are real trailblazers in terms of like making this a more diverse game because hockey is a terribly terribly white sport and to bring more people from different backgrounds into it is a hugely important thing so that's where it gets really complex in the discussion for hall of fame but I guess I'll, I'll keep it at on a pure on ice level. I don't think he should quite make it, but there's always discussions to be had. And with the Hall of Fame, you always have some weird cases make it in, some astonishing cases does not make it in every single time, like year after year after year. So who knows? Yeah, I, I feel like this the Subban is a great test case because you know like everybody knows I'm like the biggest PK Subban fan ever. Like he was my favorite player from the time I started covering hockey. In until basically the moment he retired, even though he took a steep career downfall, uh, or I believe around his third year in Nashville. But he's not a Hall of Famer because you, the peak has, I feel like, has to be higher and longer for you to make it through that threshold 
if PK Subban was the defenseman he was from 2013 to 2017 for like three or four more years, then you're like, okay, he could be borderline, but injuries and odd training habits and things kind of fell down for him. You know, didn't win a Stanley cup, obviously, which it matters. It sucks that it matters because it's a team measurement, but it does. It it absolutely matters. It keeps him out. So I feel like where he was and where that fit, I was like, I I feel like I'm very confident in the way this system is rating players because it makes sense to me. Now, let's talk about one of the guys who's behind me here before we get into Carey Price because we'll talk about Carey Price. I'm going to bring up Ken Dryden, who obviously was an easy Hall of Famer the moment he retired, but another very short career. Only played 6.8 seasons. And I've got the graphic up here. If I know Sebastian has it in his uh, DMs if he wants to take a look at it. But uh, obviously, Ken Dryden, easy Hall of Famer, but not quite in the inner circle despite his stats being uh, you know, crazy up there in terms of uh, standing up from his era. But Short, short career. Is is that what's holding him back? It is. It is. And I mean, if if playing seven seasons, basically, and being the 11th most Hall of Fame <laughs> worthy no of all time is holding you back, uh, <laughs> I it's think very impressive. <laughs> um, he actually has, since they started keeping shots as a statistic, he has the second greatest peak in my system behind only Hasek. So it shows how incredible he was for those seven years. And it's not like he was, uh, you know, aging quickly or winding down. He had more to give and went out on his own terms. So he's a really interesting one because that's probably about as short and outstanding of a career as you could have and get in truthfully. Yeah, it, it, it makes total sense. I will. What one random question for you? Who is the one goaltender who's ahead of Dryden for that era? Is it Esposito? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Good. Uh, good guess. And you know his career, I think, is about two and a half times longer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he, he had a little more uh, uh, runway to do it. Absolutely. All right. So we got to bring up Carey Price because can't not bring up Carey Price. Uh, Another one who had their career cut short, but Carey Price's card up there. He stacks out as borderline. I'm going to say he gets in, and it's not for any like bias reason. I think it's because he's close, like he's on the borderline, and he's won a heart trophy. And I feel like it's very rare for a guy who has a pretty decent career and also wins a heart trophy to not get in. I feel like the only heart trophy winners that I can think of that are maybe not going to. No, no, Corey Perry is definitely going to make the Hall of Fame, I think. Jose Theodore is like the only Hart Trophy winner I can think of that won't make the Hall of Fame. Yes, that's fair. Maybe maybe Taylor Hall. If oh, I, right. Taylor Hall won. Yeah. yeah doesn't find that. something, a back nine of his career. But um, the interesting thing about the standard when I got into this, the Hall of Fame has just been really hard on both goalies and defensemen. I don't know if it's... I noticed the sizzle, that. Yeah, the sizzle of forwards. But, you know, you'd think three forwards, two D one goalie, just based on, you know, a rough shot of it based on how they're on the ice. And it's just not like that. So there's been 13 goalies elected uh, since the 1967 expansion. So that's what price is up against. Um, the only, the only five guys in the last, uh, the era I have in 1993 to the present, you're talking Patrick Waugh, 
Hasek, Brodeur, Belfort, and Luongo. Those are your five guys that you need to be in the company of. And uh, price actually is one above the standard in my system. So I have a borderline window and there's borderline below and there's borderline above. And he just crosses the threshold. But he was the best goalie in the league for a number of years. I mean, how long that window is probably debatable. Um, he was dominated on Team Canada. I think he's well-respected. He was feared as the reputation as the guy in the league for so long. So that's the type of thing where, yeah, the numbers have him right uh, just past the borderline or just past my standard. But the truth is, like, he's he's going to be in. I, I would really yeah. hope so. So. I would be shocked because as you brought up the reputation, right? I feel like he's so loved in hockey circles and for goalies. I feel like one thing that really helps you make it into the hall of fame, because it is such a high bar for goalies is if your play had a huge impact on future goalies and Carey price definitely had that, right? Like I think if you put their careers against each other, Henrik Lundqvist for me is like a little bit ahead of Carey price played a little bit longer was more consistent, had like a longer peak that maybe didn't peak as high as Price. But Price is the guy that everyone has modeled their game after for the last 10 years, as opposed to Lundqvist, who was a little bit more unorthodox in terms of like modern goaltending, played really deep in his net, didn't really challenge as much. Carey Price in that like fluid movement is like the model for modern goaltending. So that as well probably will factor into his voting. Yeah, and as uh, as a former goalie myself, and I can tell you that every single person wants to play like Carey Price. They want to be that cool, and they want to be that effortless. And the other thing that um, should be brought up is his impact on uh, the Indigenous community and the role model in that community. And it's it's sometimes it's maybe something that doesn't get talked about enough, but you know we're talking about intangibles, um, and we mentioned it with Subban. And there's not um, a lot of visible minorities in hockey, and he's an icon, and he deserves to be. So uh, you add that to the the mix, and yeah, he's got to go in. Yeah, I agree. I think I think he has to be a shoe in, like. And it goes beyond just all those things you mentioned. I think like adding in with uh, like his indigenous background and and being a minority and reaching such a high peak in the NHL is massive. Uh, but he's also like like the Montreal Canadiens were like they had a Stanley Cup run. They had a long run. Uh, what twenty fourteen playoffs and both uh, on both those teams, the Asheville Habs team was mediocre. Right? Yeah. Like, like those were not strong Canadians teams. Like without Carey Price. I mean, we saw it in 2014. The team crumbled, right? Like it is. It was always Carey Price's team, and the fact that he did that, like in 2021, when he was, according to everyone, not in his prime anymore because he wasn't. But he turned back the years and made one last push to and gave everything for it and pushed a a genuinely mediocre team. Like we saw, the lineup itself was not all that different last season to what it was in 2021. Like, yes, you, you you lose to no, which is huge. I think that was the, the big one, apart from Carey Price. But and Weber. Actual, and Weber. Oh, you, you miss some of those pieces, but you don't miss enough to fall from Stanley Cup finalists to literal worst team in the league, right? Like, that is a huge gap. And Carey Price was really the person that carried the Habs all the way. And he did that his entire career in Montreal, right? Whether they made the playoffs or not, Carey Price always carried the Habs to wherever they ended up, right? The Habs would go as far as he could possibly take them. 
And I think that has a lot of value as well. Well, right. Like I don't think he should be held out of the hall of fame because management was not able to build an actual good enough team around him to win a cup. Yeah. And that is like the unfortunate case for a lot of players who, you know, take a long time to get into the hall of fame players who play on bad teams, like guys like Pat LaFontaine, you know, more, more guys like that. Uh, Price, I think, has the advantage of being so well-respected as the number one guy of his era that it kind of will supersede that when it comes to voting. But let's talk about another number one guy of their era, the number one guy of all time by this system, the guy that made me a hockey fan, Patrick Waugh. Because I've told this story before, but I vividly remember watching my first hockey game. I was I got in trouble with my parents, and they sent me to their room as like a timeout and I figured out a way to turn on the TV that they had in their room, which was like an old 13 inch thing. And it was a Montreal Canadians versus Hartford Whalers game. And I watched Patrick Waugh doing that little head Bob thing. Nobody can see me cause I've got the card up, but uh, the head Bob thing that he did talking to his posts. And I was like, okay, I guess this is my personality for my entire life and maybe my career. And, uh, Patrick Waugh, I will say, never let me down as a child. Uh, the Canadians did by trading him, but I got to watch him lift uh, three Stanley Cups in my lifetime. He won his first the year before I was born. And the combination of having a great peak and also being a compiler who played a long time, what can you say about Patrick Waugh? That is the most balanced Hall of Fame case you could ever see. And I think I think he's almost gone the other way where people think, oh, he's, he's an all-time great because of his cups. But he played 18 full NHL seasons, and he was top 10 in Vesna voting in 17 of them. Like, what, what, how are you that healthy? How are you that consistent? It, it, it boggles the mind, really, that you could be that good for that long. So he's not a you know, a playoff uh, guy. I mean, don't get me wrong. He is, he's possibly the greatest playoff goalie of all time, but he was also a regular season dynamo, like as good as there was. So I did have Hasek on the regular season as having a better score than him, but it's the bonuses with Patrick wise, the only guy period who has three con smites to go along with the four cups. So, I mean, uh, I did have him just barely as the most hockey hall of fame worthy guy. And I think I picked up about 50 uh, Habs <laughs> Twitter followers after I posted that. So, <laughs> Talking about great Habs goalies, it always gets the followers. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it was such an open and shut case for guys like him and Hashik. But I, I just wanted to talk about Wah because, you know, talk about a guy who influenced the way that play, people play the sport, right? The entire position changed because of what Patrick Waugh and uh, Francois Allaire were, were able to create, essentially, to modernize that butterfly that kind of existed before them, but not really mastered. They they created something that was not only like the best that it had been to that point, but also something that was teachable, and that uh, every goaltender could copy and, and become the new Patrick Waugh uh, as time went on, and that rush of Quebec goaltenders that came in a generation after him, which seems to have all but disappeared, sadly. But uh, maybe we get it again with a bunch of uh, Quebecois youngsters following Carey Price. I have an interesting story about that, Andrew, is that so I'll be 37 next week. Yeah. So when I started playing in that, I would have been, you know, eight years old in the early 90s. And I can distinctly remember 
going to a practice and someone was like, no, like you go down and you put your legs wide and this is how goalies play. And I was just like, really? Like, no, they, they all just stand there like on Rock'em Sock'em videos and they just stand (laughs) there and kick their legs. And he was the guy who made that a thing like goalie schools created and styles changed and goalies became more athletic as a function of it. So it's actually pretty incredible his impact beyond the, you know, cups and fame. And one thing that I do like about this this system that you you've made and people who were talking about uh, like Carey Price uh, and they were they were upset when you first tweeted it out and I retweeted they were like how is he the ninth of his ninth best of his era and I was trying to explain to people that this is about Hall of Fame case you're not trying to say this guy was the best like you're not saying Patrick Wall was better than Dominic Hasek you're trying to encapsulate a career as a hall of fame case, not saying like at their peaks, this guy beats this guy. Like it, it's a very, like it has the combination of being very digestible and also in a way humble. I find like you're not trying to overextend things. And that's what I really appreciate about it. Oh, no, thanks. And that's uh, for you to, for you to say that is exactly what I had hoped uh, people would think of it because I don't want to be the person saying this guy's better than this guy. It's disrespectful. Numbers can't get you there. There's too much more to it. So uh, the fact that this is more like a platform for further discussion and thanks for having my back at the beginning there when people were like, no, Carey Price is the best goalie of all time. And I was like, no, he's really, really good. We're talking Hall of Fame worthiness. And so that was, uh, yeah, <laughs> you nailed it. And did we ever figure out who the eighth goalie was that was ahead? Um, we did, and I did it really subtly. I think I just liked when it um, it was suggested. And uh, don't hate me for this uh, hockey community, but it was actually Thomas Volkun. Yeah, that is something wow. going. But if you look at his stats, and they're I don't mental. Thomas, yeah, he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame. He's not on anyone's radar. He wasn't getting award love. It's just just look and there's guys like that where what I'm hoping my project does is not get them in the hall of fame, but at least elevates to how good they really were. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about this is like, you've made the point several times that I've seen that like not making the hall of fame doesn't mean a player was bad, especially goaltenders and defensemen because the standard is so high. So it is trying to, trying to get some shine on some of these guys who don't make it because like Thomas Falcoon, he was incredible for so long. Like how old was he? Nine seventeen in his career. Yeah, and like his last year with the Penguins, I know he only played twenty games, but a nine nineteen in twenty twelve thirteen in the lockout shortened year. Older guy, like he just everywhere he went in a variety of different systems, he just excelled. But the playoff games, the playoff games is fascinating. There, he only ever played twenty two career playoff games, and half of those came in his final season. Incredible. Yeah. That is insane. He he kind of, uh, Nashville, when you think of, you know, their franchise at the beginning, he was the only thing really keeping them relevant, uh, for so long. Um, so (laughs) it's funny how, though, yeah. (laughs) What one game is a hab, um, in in 96, 97, uh, and he had a, he played 20 minutes and allowed four goals. So, and immediately got 12, lost. Twelve goals against average. Yeah, yeah. He was lost in the expansion draft, I believe, wasn't he? That's before my time. Yeah, I mean, before my time with being heavily, heavily into it by 
like numbers and stuff before I was on the internet scouring everything Canadians. Uh, yeah, his last playoffs as well. Like his playoff numbers are fantastic. Limited action, but a 928 in his career, a 933 in those 11 games of the Penguins. Like he, he was a fantastic goaltender who just doesn't get enough love. Oh, we got a question here. Does Shea Weber get in? I already know the answer to this, but uh, Paul, why don't you take it away? Yeah, I, well, I'll pull him up here. I, I know that he is, uh, he just crosses the qualification line. Um, I have a lot of these guys almost memorized after a couple of years of working on this, but uh, he's there. He is, yeah, he's just over into the qualified line. So he's over the borderline. Um, really, really interesting with Weber is his goal scoring. And I know people don't tend to talk about goal scoring for defensemen, but uh, had a reasonably long career and he's 19 goals in an adjusted environment per season for 82 games. And it's crazy. I'm looking up at who else has done that. And I've got to go all the way up to the Dennis Potvin, Paul coffee group. Wow. That's how, uh, which was a different era for hockey as well. Yeah. Well, these are adjusted, these okay, are true. adjusted yes, yes. but regardless, uh, yeah. I think those guys are considered the best of the best. At yeah, of course. Games, right. Yeah. So, Pretty wild. And as, as good as Weber's shot was, I mean, the same could be said about Chara's shot, right? And Chara did not score at nearly that, that type of pace. So, no, yeah. well said. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the difference between Chara's shot and Weber's shot was like the speed of release. Like, yeah. Chara even Chara had for to like wind up slapper. all the way. Yeah. Like when your stick is 50 feet long, <laughs> goalies might see the it coming a little bit too. Yes. Oh, man. The whip on Chara's stick. When nobody else could even bend it, insane. But yeah, I think Weber is a lot like uh, uh, not Subban. Like getting confused with the trade. A lot like Price in that being on the borderline, his reputation is so strong among hockey people, and he's got that Team Canada being like Canada's number one defenseman in 2010 and 2014. That he'll just he'll find his way in. I don't know if it'll be first ballot, but I think it'll be quick. Yeah, and it's surprising he doesn't have a Norris, and it always kind of bugs me when, you know, someone is sniffing for 10 years, but they don't actually, because a trophy is such a binary thing, right? You either win or you don't, and there's guys who have won, and there's guys who, and part of my PPS system is the awards is actually award shares, so it's not if you won an award or didn't, it's the sum of your vote percentage over the course of your career, because to me, that's a much better indicator than did you win one award or did you not? Because guys like Cujo are still being punished for it, you know, and the finalist, but didn't actually win it. So. Yeah, it is frustrating. So I feel like that's one of those weird things about the NHL is I think you can be theoretically the best player in the world, but never be the best player in any specific season. Yeah, you know, if you're like consistently two or three and then there's a lot of change between like one and five, that consistent guy, probably the best one. Uh, We're going to get to one last player card here, but we got a question first uh, from Trizak says, are there any current Hall of Famers who shouldn't have gone in by your model, Paul? I'm going to take one guess and it's going to get Habs fans probably a little bit upset. I don't think. Guy Carboneau should be in the Hall of Fame. I think that's a Hall of Very Good pick. That, that happened because Carboneau is friends with a lot of people on that committee. <laughs> well, the the thing about my system is, so it 
keeps exactly as many guys above the standard are as in the hall of fame. So there are 44 guys out there who are uh, below the standard that are in, meaning there's 44 that are in. And the majority of them are all borderline. It's like, you know, there are, there's no blatant misses. Um, the thing I would say about Carbonell, like he doesn't score well in the system, but no defense first players generally do. And um, it's kind of like I consider it like a closer in baseball where they're such a specialist that their stats are never going to jump off the page. So if you're calling, say, Bob Ganey, Mariano Rivera, where if you're the best ever at something, then you should be in. I don't know that Carbono was there. Um, he doesn't rate real well in my system, but I never really got much of a chance to watch him play. And it seems like his reputation's been uh outstanding so i i don't i don't really know i mean I, I still haven't found a perfect way to address some of those defense first guys yeah i feel like we're just now in the 2020s getting to accurately measuring defense so whenever we go backwards in history like 30 40 years it's so difficult to to think like who was actually good defensively without doing like exhaustive video work like i did a project back in like 2011 or 2012 where I watched a bunch of old Habs playoff games like against the the Bruins in in 79 right like that series and watching Bob Ganey I was like okay like everything people say about Bob Ganey is true like it's it's very clear he was incredible defensively and I saw things like uh Scott uh Scotty Bowman using tactics that a lot of coaches didn't use in like the 1990s and early 2000s, like the whole like uh, Lemaire shut and Lafleur line, every time they would have a defensive zone va- face off, it was Bob Ganey subbing in for shut. He wasn't trusting the defensive zone, but offensive zone face off always shut out there. And it, it's stuff like how underappreciated Lafleur was defensively, uh, especially after he clashed so much with Lemaire as a coach for not playing defensive enough and like by modern standards i feel like we talk about lafleur as a great defensive player because he was excellent at getting that puck and rushing it out of there creating offense from defense but without that it's really hard i think to measure historical defense because you're relying entirely on reputation which as we know not a very good measure <laughs> Oh, that's fair. You, you do wonder about what a Selkie vote would look like today versus then where, you know, you don't have as much access to the games and very much more reputation based. Uh, man, it's an interesting thought. All right. I'm going to ask the chat here to take a guess. We're going to look at one more Montreal Canadian who is not in the Hall of Fame that Paul's system says very much should be a good candidate for it. Does anybody think they know who it might be? And then I'll throw it up there. We'll see. Uh, somebody asking, should Markov be in? I feel like Markov's one of those guys who just, he's he was good for a long time, but didn't quite make it. Yeah. Dan Hall says, Andrew's doing his best Gallagher impression, trying to fight everyone tonight. This is true. Making Montreal Canadiens uh, fans mad. Yeah, just to address it quick, Andrew, Markov does actually a lot better than even I was expecting. Um, he's at 227. And to get into what I call the Hall of Very Good, he'd need to be 245. So wow. he's not, um, you know, he's he's nine defensemen from being in the Hall of Very Good kind of thing. So uh, he actually rates really well on this. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer by any means, but 
adjusted pace, 51 points in a neutral era, which is actually pretty darn good. Yeah. Impressive, impressive player. And I feel like what helps Markov's case is how good he was after coming back from those knee surgeries. Cause he missed like two full seasons basically in his prime years and then came back really great. Oh, Dennis is repeatedly asking for Saku Koi. I feel like Saku's the injuries and how bad the Canadians were. I feel like there's no way Saku is close, unfortunately, even though Saku Koivu is a hall of famer in our hearts. Yeah, I won't, I don't want to go there. I'm not going to, I'm not even going to pull him off because I know he's not <laughs> going to register on the hall of fame and I don't want to disrespect in the slightest, uh, a guy who deserves a lot of respect. Yeah. There's a bunch of guesses here. Matt Nasland, Alex Kovalev. I would assume Kovalev would be close. Halak, uh, Placanic, Dale Weiss, Douglas Murray. No, all right, I'm gonna throw it up there Ready now. Renny Bork, yeah, almost. That's all we can do for Renny Bork. It's John Leclerc, and I love this one because obviously it's a trick. He doesn't, he didn't do much of this with the Canadians. It was mostly with the Flyers, but he did win a cup in Montreal, and. I actually got the had the privilege of talking to John Leclerc last year for an interview, and uh, I talked to him about there was I think a three or four year period where he actually led the entire league in scoring. It was a time where Lindros missed a little bit of time, and he just continued chugging along. I believe he was first in goals and second in points behind Yager, and at the same time had uh, great defensive numbers as well. Yeah, he was a three-time 50 goal scorer in an era where one to four guys were scoring 50 goals. Um, his career, he's a 37 goal per 82 game guy in his own era, which when you really think about that, think of a 37 goal scorer in any season, that's his career. Yeah. Um, the kind of the, the fact that jumps out for Leclerc. So when you talk postseason all-stars, he was a five time, uh, first or second team guy at left wing. And there is nobody who is outside the hall of fame as well, who has five all-stars. Um, I know there's a bit of a wrinkle to that because the center depth is obviously much heavier than the wings, but still, I mean, uh, to me, to me, he rates really well in my system and he just played in the worst offensive time that a scoring guy could ever play if we're being honest. And I think had he played 10 years earlier, he's, career would look so much different oh my god like the legion of doom line in the 1980s would have destroyed worlds like i I don't even (laughs) i couldn't even imagine that it would have changed the game drastically i think yeah yeah uh totally agree even lindros uh didn't probably get the love he deserved uh for the same reasons oh 100 100 that's one of those lines where you go back and watch tape of it and half of you is like is focused on how were they this good, and the other half is like how did they get away with that? This is just a different game back then between Lindros and Scott Stevens and Marchment bending people in half, Gary Suter. Weird, it weird. Was celebrated. It was celebrated. It was celebrated too. It was just like oh, they carried the guy off. Woo, that's great, and. I, I mean, I think it's a good thing <laughs> that it's come it's come a long way from there. Hundred percent, hundred percent. All right, uh, we'll probably close it out there. Thank you both so much for coming on. I 
really had fun going through these Hall of Fame cases. I'll I'll throw up one last one as we're closing things out because nobody needs to see my face anymore. Uh, just for Guy Lafleur, how good Guy Lafleur was. He races the number five forward of his era, which covers from expansion to 1993, number 12 all time. And obviously his high noon, which is like his peak over a three-year period, is number one. He gets into the inner circle as obviously one of the best players of all time. So the dearly departed Guy Lafleur, absolutely fantastic slam dunk hall of fame case. Obviously we already know that cause he's in, but uh, I feel like he's one of those guys who kind of gets slept on in that he played right before Gretzky and people don't remember how great he actually was. So shout out to Guy Lafleur, shout out to Paul, shout out to Sebastian for coming on this show and uh, before we close it out, guys, tell everybody where they can find your work. First, Sebastian, and then Paul. Uh, on Twitter. Like, everything I do is posted on Twitter. Uh, and I'll be back on the show, I think, in December at one point, And then at some point later on in the year, because me and my friend Aaron had booked a game with the Leafs, but we got booted off because you guys are doing the Hot Ones Challenge that day uh, with Adam Wilde. Uh, but yeah, just Twitter, uh, and there you can follow all of my prospect analysis and my work with Dubber Prospects. Awesome. Yeah. For, for me, um, I was on Leafs lunch this afternoon. I know boo Leafs, but, um, I was on uh, <laughs> Leafs lunch today. So if anyone wants to catch that, I thought it was a really good segment, but, um, you could find me on Twitter at adjusted hockey. Um, I've been tweeting out a lot of the cards and getting a lot of response. Um, I was featured in an athletic article today with Down Goes Brown, which was a really cool experience. You can also check my website, um, www.adjustedhockey.com. It has the whole methodology on there. And I've started to put up some blog posts there uh, related to the Hall of Fame. So so you can find me. Check them out, guys. And I guess we have a couple more questions. Sorry. Before we close it out, Trizak says that he won't stand for this Hoffman erasure in today's game over. He's on a heater. Mike Hoffman, first round pick he is. at the trade deadline. That's and, con- gonna... and confident. He's and confident. With confidence. I mean, hey. And goal scorers with confidence is a scary thing. Like It is. His first game time... is a very different thing from what we've seen in Habs jersey with Mike Hoffman. And, you know, controversial as it may be, I think he actually looks better on that line with Dvorak and Gallagher than Anderson did. I like what Anderson's he's a great doing this year, but. He's a great fit with, with Gallagher. Like, yep. Gallagher shooting for rebounds, uh, Hoffman hunting those down. It's a decent fit. It works. It works if they so, can insulate so him that guy. That guy where when he's flying, you just go, "Why don't you do that all the time?" Yep. <laughs> yep. That, that that that's Joel Armia. Yeah, you all. Armia turns into McDavid for like one game or two games a year, and you're just like, "Why can't you do this more?" Joel Armia in practice is like Mario Lemieux, and then in games yeah. he's like, hey. the, "The wrist shot is incredible. Like it he, is, he it is crazy. So many amazing power forward tools, and then it's just a a solid bottom six guy." Somebody said I didn't talk about Cole bodying Myers. You're right. I forgot. I got distracted by everything. Cole Caulfield destroying Tyler Myers's confidence and career twice tonight. Um, uh, one last one for Paul. Armand from Game Over Toronto joined and said, what's Gretzky's PPS? Is there a maximum for that system? <laughs> there, There is no maximum, but I think Gretzky's would be about all you could humanly do. Um, 567. And oh, my God. To be oh, in oh. the Hall of Fame in his <laughs> era, you need to be 235 so you, <laughs> oh two hall of fame he's careers 470 and he's 567 so oh my god yeah I mean, I, I, 
it's not a shock, right? When you look it's at gross. the whole, like, who's the fastest player to a thousand points? It's Gretzky. And who's the second fastest? It's, it's Gretzky's next thousand. <laughs> like, what a absolute maniac. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in tonight. We're back on Saturday. Thanks to Paul. Thanks to Sebastian. I know we went long, but this was too fun. We'll talk to you then. Thanks a lot. Game over! Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's sports